just for ease, honestly, for myself, um, the Sunday schools for the next little while, we're going to be kind of continuing the topical study that we were doing before Brother Tim was here. Um, so that'll go in order of the, the Baptist confession, but I'm going to mostly just pick a text that takes those themes and try to dwell on that text for a little bit as we go. Um, and then periodically, Brother Garrett is going to help us and, and lead us through the book of Ruth as he's been doing, so probably once a month we'll hear from him, something like that. Um, okay, so the topic for today is repentance unto life and salvation, and I'm going to just give us a few things to think about out of Psalm 51. That'll be our central text. Psalm 51. And as we turn there, I'm going to reference one other text first right out of the gate, and then we'll be in Psalm 51 the rest of the time. But that's because there's something in Acts 11 that I want to draw out, um, just as, I suppose, a proof text for this idea. Um, So the idea of repentance unto life, as we think about it topically, repentance obviously has a large, um, is a large theme throughout the Bible, and particularly an emphasis on it in the New Testament as we see that. But the question is, is repentance something that um, gets us into a position where therefore now God can reconcile with us and we with him? Um, Or is repentance something that we can do that that stores up sort of good favor with God or elicits some kind of response from God? How are we, are we to think of repentance in that sort of way? Or are we to flip that on its head and realize, no, repentance is a gift granted to the child um, so that they might draw closer to God and that they might um, be held and, and persevere in faith? And I'm going to argue that, that the scriptures talk about it in the latter way. But that doesn't mean that repentance doesn't often come at the beginning of the Christian life, right? So we can think of a couple instances in the Bible, maybe Paul um, turning to Saul, or um, we think of Manasseh in the book of 2 Chronicles. And so I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to turn there and read that account just briefly. Um, 2 Chronicles. These are instances where God, having impressed upon someone's heart their own sin, leads them to repentance and faith. And this, for many, is the beginning of the Christian life, but not always. We understand that sometimes growing up in the church, um, we nonetheless still repent of our sins, but it doesn't come upon us in the same way. It's not as if we live a whole life of, of sin and waywardness indifferent to the things of God. Um, but So this would be Second Chronicles chapter 33. We have this story of Manasseh, who was a wicked king, and at a particular time, um, after his reign, and uh, it says this in verse 10 of Second Chronicles chapter 33, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, and they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought up the commanders of the armies of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God, And humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And so in this particular instance, we see God brought up peculiar providence, a time of reckoning where the evil king was brought to his knees before God, and God brought him to repentance, and God forgave him his sin and brought him back into the kingdom. And this 
This agrees with the testimony of the New Testament. Just briefly, if we were to look at Acts chapter 11, we would see a similar thing. It's just a short verse. Um, perhaps we would even overlook it, but it's significant when it says, uh, Acts chapter 11, um, this is when, uh, when the gospel comes to the Gentiles as well, and, the, and people remark in verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them, that is the Holy Spirit, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And just snatching out of there the idea that repentance, the kind of repentance that leads to life, is an evangelical repentance, meaning it is granted to people by God so that they may flee from their sin to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to just linger on in Psalm 51. Understanding this, though, Psalm 51 is written by David, who is one of God's, um, one of God's people. We know in this time he has already walked with God um, through much of his life, and yet, at least traditionally, this psalm is written at a time when David is confronted about his terrible sin with Bathsheba, where he is, um, not only has he committed adultery, he has murdered in order to provide for his fleshly indulgence, and God then has claimed the life of and so it brings David back to repentance. And so we have, right from the get-go, that repentance is not only something that is at the beginning of the Christian life, not a one-and-done kind of thing, but it is that by which God continually brings his people turning to him again and again so that they might be renewed in faith. So the first thing we want to observe here, um, just right from the get-go, is that it is a gracious provision, not only at the beginning, but throughout. And its basis is a covenantal love of God. So from verse 1 of Psalm 51, we say, David reads this. The first place he's going to go is, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And the first thing we see is repentance. Why would we ever repent to say, you know, I, I regret what I have did. I have sinned against the Lord. Why would we even say that unless we have faith that God's steadfast love is unshakable? That's why we repent. There's nothing that brings us to repentance more than remembering that God has set his covenantal love on his people. He says this, let me read it again. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This is the basis for all repentance and all life in Christian living is God's unconditional, sovereign love given to his people. So then from this we understand it is, it is this evangelical grace. It springs forth from faith, from faith in the gospel. It doesn't cause faith. So we don't think of repentance doing something so that God would give us salvation. Rather, it springs forth when God has worked in a heart and says, he convicts of sin and draws their eyes to him and says, I am, you are a sinful, sinner, but I am a merciful Savior. This is when the sinner is compelled to repent unto God and unto a repentance that leads to faith and salvation. So we can see that particularly. Let's, uh, I'm going to read all the way through so that we don't miss, but 
we'll focus then on, on verse 7, for example. Okay. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in inner truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Do you see the faith there? Do you see what he's saying? He said, God, you can make me clean. I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. The, the, the blood of my own son is on my own head. And yet, God, you can clean me. You can make me whiter than snow. So this, again, is motivated out of a great love of, of faith, a conviction, a sure conviction that God is able to cleanse even the worst sinner and bring him again to joy. Then let's realize something else that is going on as we read through this. Listen to the me and the my. Notice how David makes this very particular. There's a, there's a tendency that's been noted often, maybe in common culture, maybe throughout history, where when we see the sins of other people, maybe even particularly the sins of other Christians, we think, well, that's really bad. I need to apologize for that. And so we get this idea of, of sort of corporate repentance, right? I see the sin, and I'm going to apologize to other people for this. Um, famously, C.S. Lewis wrote about this when people would go or, and, and try to apologize for the Crusades or other things like this. And he comments, you know, it's pretty easy for you to repent of something that you were never tempted to do. <laughs> so that's something you don't think you're actually guilty of in the first place. Rather, what is David repenting of here? His sin is personal. He says, I have sinned against you, God. Right? We're not, we're not the, uh, the federal head, if you will, of other people. We can't repent on their behalf. We say, God, forgive me. I am a sinner. So it is personal. But it's particular. Um, you know, in this, in this particular psalm, the words transgression and sin are written generally, and I think appropriately so. It's given to the church as, you know, the prayer book of the church so that we may confess sin together through it. But let us not forget the backdrop. David is praying for a particular sin. He knows what he has done is wrong. Likewise, we ought to not merely with the waving of a hand because we don't want to consider, Lord, you know, just forgive me for everything, but rather, Lord, I have sinned against your law in this way. Forgive me because your steadfast love is good, because you can make me whiter than snow. Purge me and I will be clean, Lord. I've sinned because of this particular sin. And then finally, Reading on, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit then I will teach others your ways, and sinners will return to you. So two things, the couple of verse 12 and 13. First, in verse 12, 
restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit, those are both things that are the consequences of repenting. So this is how God perseveres his people. That is, if you want the joy of salvation, if you want to be preserved, if you want to be upheld with a willing spirit, humble yourself before the Lord and confess your sins to him, and he will grant you forgiveness. He has promised forgiveness in the gospel, and this is the way that God keeps his people continuing on in the walk of faith. And then, finally, in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And this point is essentially this. Even though repentance is not a meritorious repentance, it's not something that earns us any favor with God, that doesn't make it any less necessary to be preached, to be taught, that people would be urged to do it. This is exactly what David then just says. I will teach your ways, and sinners will return to you. I will teach transgressors your ways. So to teach the transgressor the way of God is to teach them repentance. It's not to teach them indifference or to teach them that there is, um, that there is, no, um, that there is no right or wrong or that God does not, uh, is not holy. And so David, here, the, the pen of the inspired writer, says, Lord, you have done this for me, then I will teach transgressors your way. I will teach them the way of repentance. And so even with our, even with our children, that we give them the gospel and we teach them, you come to Christ empty-handed and you, you cast your soul upon him because he brings everything to the equation and he has saved you from death to life. Nevertheless, we don't, we don't deny what John the Baptist and Jesus and all the apostles and everyone preached in the New Testament, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sins. Look away to Christ. So those are the, those are the main points today. Um, in trying to summarize them briefly, we, we made it well within time. So I'll just restate them again, right? First, repentance, if, uh, particularly if someone has uh, lived in sin for many years, but perhaps um, even a few years, repentance often is the beginning of a Christian life. But just because it's the beginning doesn't mean it's isolated to the beginning. It doesn't make it meritorious. Rather, we see that throughout the walk of a Christian life, it is granted to people by God. Repentance is an evangelical grace. It's, it's a gift of God. We don't naturally of ourselves repent. That would be something that is foreign to a sinful heart, to humble ourselves before God. Rather, we are thankful to him for the repent, repentance that he has granted to us. And in repenting, we sing his love, his covenantal love to us, his sworn promise to be faithful to us, though we are sinners, because Christ has died for us. And in this, then, um, through this faith, we both re realize that it is to be particular, it is to be our sins, to be um, personal and, and about the sins that we have done, and that it's necessary to teach others this repentance. Two or three minutes. Thoughts or questions or comments about a very, very, very brief overview of the role of repentance in the Christian life. Okay. Well, let's thank the Lord for the repentance that he often grants us. Heavenly Father, 
We have sinned in our hearts many times. Even as I stand here today, particularly, Lord, my heart is tossed to and fro, discouraged, um, perhaps even unwilling to rest in the fact that you have granted a perfect salvation to us. Unwilling to look with the eyes of faith upon the joys that are set before us in your word. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive us. Thank you for creating in us willing hearts, granting us repentance. Lord, for it is in this way you have given us salvation. You have brought us safely thus far and you will lead us safely home. Thank you for David. Thank you for the way you worked in his life, though you brought him through much trial and we would rather avoid such trials and we would um, shudder to think of such sin. Nevertheless, you are gracious even in a sin as heinous as David's to give to him and restore to him the joy of your salvation. Lord, even in the face of mighty sin, you would not just say, well, you're saved, but you must be sorrowful all your days and never have joy, for you are punished. No, Lord. You've said, this is forgiven. Rejoice in your salvation, and you restored joy to a sinner like David. Thank you for doing this in our own hearts over and over and over again. Lord, I pray that you'd bless us today. May your name be honored. Amen.